Welcome to the Big Mike Fun Podcast, where you learn about advanced wealth building strategies from real estate investing to creating massive ROI and secure retirement profits. So pour yourself a cup of coffee, grab a notepad, and lean in. Welcome to the Big Mike Fun Podcast. I'm the Big Mike, Mike Zlatnik, and today it is my pleasure and a privilege to welcome back my very good friend, Paul Moore. Hi, Paul. Hey, Mike. How are you? I'm doing well. How are you? Great. Good to see you again. Likewise. Uh, Paul is a uh, founder of the Wellings Capital. Um, Great. um, I guess you run a fund-to-fund model, right? Similar to ours. You run... uh, Mm -hmm. So tell us a little bit about the Wellings Capital before we, we jump further. And then we'll, we'll yeah. go back and just, I usually start with the family, but this time we'll, we'll talk about the Wellings Capital first. Yeah, yeah. Wellings Capital was born out of failure. Um, I So I was, I, I sold my company to a public f- uh, fund, uh, publicly traded firm, I should say, 25 years ago. And then I, I got into residential real estate. I was in um, I flipped houses. I flipped waterfront lots at Smith Mountain Lake in Virginia. I built some houses, which was a big mistake for me. Let me tell you, uh, I, uh, I, I, I built a website that generated a lot of leads for realtors. And that was not a mistake. But over the years, I tried to figure out how to get involved in commercial real estate. At those, during those years also, I learned the difference between investing and speculating. And Mike, you know this, but you know, for those who haven't thought of it this way, you know, investing is when your principal's safe and you've got a chance to make a return and speculating is when your principal's not safe at all. And you've got a chance to make a return. And I was a more of a speculator than an investor at the time. And I didn't want to do that anymore. And I was trying to figure out how to get involved in commercial real estate. Well, my buddy and I built a multifamily facility in North Dakota. And then we did another one. It was wildly successful and um, we sold those and he built a Hyatt hotel and I decided to stay in multifamily. I ended up writing a book on multifamily, humbly titled The Perfect Investment. And, um, but I found out that the perfect investment wasn't perfect if you couldn't find assets that made sense. And this is where we failed. We did not, we were not finding deals that really made sense to us that really penciled out. And this went on for years and, uh, you know, a lot of mul- these multifamily folks who have been in it a long time, like Mike, some of the folks you work with, they are crushing it still in multifamily. But some people, I think, who are newer in multifamily could get crushed. And we could talk about that later. But I was starting to feel like I was one of those new ones who could get crushed. And this was like, you know, eight years ago. And so we expanded into self-storage, mobile home parks, and we decided we wanted to go out and find those experts. We wanted to go out and we didn't want to be a speculator. We wanted to go out and find these people who were the best of the best in multifamily, self-storage, mobile home parks, and other asset classes. And so that's what we started. And we actually just had tremendous success uh, with this model. Uh, Our goal is to provide, you know, just a diversified portfolio across different assets, different operators, different geographies, and uh, different strategies and give one investor with one investment a chance to be spread over, you know, maybe a hundred different assets and six asset classes. So that's what we do. Yeah, I love the model. Uh, (laughs) Certainly, uh, we've been drinking from the same uh, Coca-Cola can, uh, but it's 
it's value investing in family of funds and running diversified funds with multiple strategies. And most certainly love your comment about investing versus speculating. It's, yeah. it's so funny. I, I subscribe to this, uh, to the nth degree. Um, you've probably heard of uh, <laughs> my famous infamous investment quadrants that I've come up with. And yeah. the quadrant one and two is all about investing. Quadrant three, about three and four about is all about speculation. Yeah. And the bottom line is you could speculate. You, you certainly can. And there's nothing fundamentally wrong with investing in speculative projects. Right. Right. You just have to be well aware that what, what, what you, you're writing your checks into high risk, high reward type of projects, and they may succeed or may, may fail. Right. You have to be prepared to be dealing with failures as, as well as successes. That's right. And uh, we're going into sort of recession. And today, it's even more important to invest in projects with good downside protection. So yeah. how are you finding strong deals today? Um, you're launching a new fund, uh, Wellings Income Fund, right? Forgive me if I... If I, if I yeah, Will- Wellings Real Estate Income Real Estate fund. Income Fund. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's going to be focused, uh, I assume, on investment great or investment-like projects with good downside mm-hmm. protection. So how are you finding uh, strong deals today that you feel good about um, potentially going into a recession or some, 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 term, some form of a downturn? Yeah. So we're partnering with operators who have, you know, just a, an amazing knack of finding deals. And I've got, you know, I could take the rest of the time telling you stories about that, but these uh, investors, these operators, I should say, are, you know, they have a Warren Buffett mindset, you know, or a Howard Marks mindset that they're looking for value, intrinsic value that's not easily spotted by the general public and is specifically not spotted by the seller. And so, you know, for example, buying a self-storage facility that has 80% occupancy, and this was in Grand Junction, Colorado, uh, 80% occupancy, which is, you know, double or even triple what you want to see uh, as far as vacancy that is. In other words, you want to see, let's say, 6 or 7% vacancy. They had 20. That didn't sound too bad. But then you look closer and find out they have 80% delinquency, which is really easy to solve when you've got their stuff and you can lock their them out of their unit. Easy to solve, but they hadn't solved it. So, you know, acquired that facility and, you know, increased the net operating income by like 50% in just a short time, then increased rates, increased marketing, you know, de- you know, fix the deferred maintenance, stuff like that, where there's just significant upside uh, and significant value. Then if there's a recession and you've got, let's say 40% debt on it, well, you know, it's not so bad. Uh, if you have some shocks along the way, and that's the kind of deals we like, or, or you know, the the deal that you know you and I both invested in, uh, which would be a retail strip center where they're selling off the out parcels and giving the principal, the capital, back to the investors, and then the investors stay in at the same level. That's the kind of intrinsic value we love to see. Yeah, I appreciate that uh, mindset, and and uh, yeah, I share I share, I share the, the same uh, philosophy. And these type of deals are not easy to find. Obviously, when you find the gem and you are a good operator, you can tell immediately. The example you yeah. gave of eighty percent occupancy and um, pretty bad collections and storage—that's a walk in the park. Yeah. <laughs> Compare right. that to some other asset classes; it's a lot difficult to collect. A storage you just lock them out. So, yeah, right. 
Um, let's talk a little bit about uh, some of the new asset classes you are thinking or you're investing in, some light industrial and um, anything else that you you feel that might be interesting into you know into this mm-hmm. potential down, downturn turn type of economy. Yeah. Did you know that um, there's a huge amount of money going in industrial right now, especially with, you know, the retail, I mean, distribution, Amazon distribution and all this, but only about 3% of the money going into industrial is going into light industrial, small box spaces. Yet there's a huge demand for this. I mean, there's all these startup companies and there's, you know, there's um, uh, biomedical companies doing all the research they're doing. And some of them only need a five or 10 or 20,000 square foot box. And some of them are growing fast and they need to be able to expand. There's also, and this is Mike, I had no idea this was true, but just like you see mom and pop self-storage and mobile home parks and even apartments, there's actually mom and pop light industrial parks. And so we're investing with an operator who's got a very good database of all the mom and pop light industrial owned, owned light industrial parks in the U S what they do is they'll go in and the light industrial part might've been, you know, the signs might not have even been fixed or changed since like the eighties. The landscaping is outdated. Uh, The, the asphalt's crumbling, the roofs are bad and leaking and, you know, you go in to look at a new unit there and a realtor t- takes you in. And this, this happened to me about eight months ago. We were looking for new office space and there's phone systems from like the 90s laying all over the floor. And there's old uh, office dividers, cubicles still set up, all kinds of trash, thousands of file folders. I mean, literally, it's all there. And they're like, well, here it is. And it's like, well, who wants that? You know, so they'll go in and they'll fix the landscaping and the signage and they'll change the colors and they might change the doors and windows, fix the roof, the asphalt, they'll make it beautiful and they'll customize the suites for whatever someone wants. And they put a person on site at every industrial park so that if somebody's saying, hey, we're busting out of our 5,000 square feet, we need 10, rather than calling a realtor and moving out, they say, oh, we can combine these two other suites for you right here. And so these guys are crushing it. And this is the light industrial space. So we really like that one. Uh, that's one of two new ones we're doing. Another one is RV parks. You know, Mike, uh, you know, the whole thing that we do with, in, with mobile home parks and self-storage and all that. We think RV parks are where self-storage was about 30 years ago. In fact, uh, some of the folks like Equity Residential, Sun Communities, you know, Sam Zell and Sun Communities and other REITs and large companies are looking at RV parks. There's only, um, I think there's 8,000 RV parks in the U.S. and the vast majority are either run really well by like KOA or Yogi, Yogi Bear uh, RV parks, Jellystone RV parks, or they're mom and pops. And some of these mom and pops have great locations and great, you know, land available, but they're just not doing that much with them. If you can acquire a great RV park and I mean, a, a mediocre RV park in a great location is what I meant to say. You can go in like the one I stayed at in um, Fort Worth, Texas recently, they had added a $2.2 million water park. They had added a $600,000 lake. They added this fun thing called Wibbits. Wibbits is a big obstacle course that floats on the lake and they charge kids $17 an hour 
to be on the Wibbits, and that comes out to $1,000 per hour in the summer months. They're charging for this $200,000 uh, Wibbits that they, that they installed there. Uh, they do all kinds of other things, hayride, putt-putt golf, face painting, t-shirt painting, painting for gold, uh, trampoline, safe trampolines, uh, all kinds of stuff, you know, and they have a drive-in movie theater screen, you know, it doesn't look like super fancy, but it's all there and they are crushing it in the RV park arena. And they're putting together a portfolio that someday they might be able to sell to someone like Sam Zell. And so we're investing with them, uh, and we're really excited about it. Yeah, that's great. That's, uh, uh, that's a, I guess it's an income focused uh, asset class that um, has substantial uh, upside if mm. um, you can find the right assets. And yeah. like you said, in real estate, the uh, <laughs> it's always about location, location, location. Yeah. You've got a great location and that operation, you could fix that. You, it's a lot harder to find a good operation, bad location and make it uh, yeah. any better. Because you almost right. have no upside, you maximize a thing and you, what, what the thesis here is the reverse. You could you could underperforming yeah. asset grade location is easier yeah. to, uh, to take it to the next level. One thing I love about RV parks is some of these, like the one in Fort Worth, is way out in the sticks, and they were able to buy the hundred acres next door for dirt cheap. Well, now they can add hundreds of additional RV sites to that hundred acres, and they have something really powerful once they add the marketing juice to it. Is this, uh, and forgive me, I'm not an expert in this space. And I, I do know people who have these RVs and it's, it's very interesting, um, pastime. It, I guess people take, take their, it's like a second home on the, on, on the wheels. Yeah. Um, is that an exploding, um, I guess, form of, uh, travel and entertainment and, uh, uh, yeah. I'm just curious, what's... what's 20% or more of RV campers have, have started since COVID. So we're talking, what, two and a half years. And uh, there's about 9.3 million households in the U.S. with an RV. No, excuse me, 11 million households in the U.S. with an RV. But get this, 9.3 million more say they plan to buy one within five years. And that doesn't include all the rentals, all the people who can rent them. You know, you can rent them like, like an Airbnb type RV rental type thing now. And uh, so this is exploding. The demand for RV park spaces could double in not that very long. And the, the supply of really well-run parks, I mean, I don't see how they'll ever keep up. Uh, so there's there's a tremendous opportunity here for the right operator. What kind of returns are in this space? I'm just, I'm just curious. If you're yeah. investing, you you run a fund of funds. I run yeah. a fund of funds, and you, I'm just curious as a uh, as an investor, mm-hmm. what yeah, kind gotta, of returns can you can you expect? Uh, at least what, what are the projections? Yeah, so our, our folks are projecting about the first year and a half or so with zero. Uh, distributions while they're really gearing up, you know, adding the water park, the water slides and everything else. And then they expect them to jump quite quickly into the 20% plus range cash on cash. And uh, it's quite surprising. And so even if we're hope, you know, even if we can hit half that, we'll be really happy uh, with cash flow. And then they, of course, just like a lot of other folks, they can refinance, give the capital back and keep us in for a long time. And so that's what we're looking at there. 
Yeah, that's a very interesting strategy. It's, I guess it's a growth strategy in the initial couple of years, but then yeah. it turns into income uh, if they can get this to full operation. Uh, right. Yeah, it's it makes total sense. Um, obviously, the the shopping plazas you mentioned that um, we don't need to talk about it. We we invest in the space as well, and uh, certainly love the strategy. Uh, what else are you seeing? Obviously, classic storage. Uh, any other interesting income opportunities? Um, and you, you know, I guess mobile home parks. You're still finding opportunities in that space. Yeah, there's about 43,000 mobile home parks in the U.S., and we still believe 80 to 85 percent or more are owned by mom and pop operators. And these folks don't have the desire, the in, the interest, uh, the the knowledge, or the resources to improve the uh, park, increase income, and maximize value. Mike, they don't have to. Cap rates have already more than been cut in half meaning the value of a mediocre park that was mediocre 10 years ago, it's still mediocre now, has more than doubled. And as a result, these folks are getting astronomical offers. And um, the great news is that somebody can pay a full price, very fair price for a mobile home park like this and significantly improve it and uh, sometimes provide great cash flow and appreciation for their investors. And so we're, we're partnering with operators who are really good at that. Yeah, it's back to the value. It's just now finding high yielding assets right off the get-go is, is, is very right. difficult, but the value is where the, the dollars flow. Um, yeah, you know, two weeks ago, uh, the Biden administration just announced they were going to give significant incentives to uh, for manufactured housing, for building and for um, leasing and owning manufactured housing, including mobile homes. And so this sector could really explode. And in fact, for years, we've been saying it's the only asset class that has a decreasing supply and an increasing demand every year. But it's possible that there's going to be an increasing supply uh, as people look toward the possibility of building new mobile home parks again, first time since the seventies, as far as we know. So let's dissect this a little bit. So mobile home park, park versus manufactured homes. Manufactured homes is is something that I I, I think of. Uh, it's a regular home just built somewhere at else uh, the factory and brought uh, and installed on land. So it doesn't get built on, on land. It gets built in a factory and just gets delivered and installed. That's in my in my mind, at least manufactured home. But while mobile home park, it's uh, it's you know it's your traditional mobile home parks. These are sort of homes on wheels that gets get moved and get parked there. Um, the the question is, most towns and cities just don't 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 like that. They don't, right. don't want to grant any more land for that. Because of the tax base, you got a lot of people in very mm -hmm. small amount of land, right. and you wind up um, uh, consuming a lot of resources, yep. water, energy, and on top of that, uh, police, schools, all that stuff get overloaded. That's exactly right. So is this is this still are the is it, is is there more approvals happening right now? I'm just curious, kind of like where's the industry going? What why why cities are changing their mind because they have a lot of people and not, not, not enough housing. Is that mm -hmm. what's happening? No, I mean, uh, I, I, honestly, I don't have a great answer for you, but I will say that uh, that your analysis of why they've been turning them down for years is spot on. And I'm guessing cities are still going to want to be turning them down. 
Um, but these new incentives that are going to come down, I mean, they might, for example, uh, it's possible that Freddie Mac and Fannie Mae might start providing financing for mobile homes the same way they do single family homes. Now, we're still talking about a depreciating asset. So that kind of surprises me. Oh, and speaking of which, going back to what you said earlier, there's manufactured housing, which can include modular homes, which are stick built standards built in a factory, or it can include mobile homes, which, you know, they show up on wheels or, but, you know, 93% of them or more never move again after the day they're set. And um, so anyway, I, I don't know. It remains to be seen if cities will change their mind. I think a lot of these mobile home parks will probably be in, you know, lesser zoned areas outside of town is what I'm guessing. What I heard, and I spoke with, uh, uh, we have some mutual friends. One of them is Glenn Stromberg, if you, if you know Glenn. And he's been in the manufactured homes for many years. And one of the biggest challenges, uh, he's been on my podcast too. One of the biggest challenges today is you can't get product. It's not about that yeah. you, you can get a good location uh, and you could, you know, if you could only get the deliveries, this is the biggest problem is just the uh, factories are over uh, the just supply chain problems. They, they just can't deliver the product fast enough. Yeah. So I'm in agreement that these uh, mobile home, manufactured home parks uh, in ton of demand is the supply problem. Mm-hmm. So it's yeah, a huge I, problem. Yeah. And I don't know. Maybe a great investment opportunities, but where are you going to get these properties? And it's funny, I was approached um, by uh, a gentleman with a project and it sounded all wonderful, but the biggest problem is they couldn't get a confident answer. How are you going to get the deliveries? It's, it's, it's the, 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 if you go to some of these uh, large manufacturers, they have their own home stores that sell their product. Why would they want to sell the product to a small developer? It just doesn't yep. make any sense. That's right. You know, you and I talked to that same guy and I feel the same way. Uh, some of the really experienced people like uh, an organization in uh, upstate New York that we invest with, they've got like orders for a hundred mobile homes at a time that they'll put on order, looking out six, nine or 12 months, hoping to get delivery, you know, by then. Uh, it's not like it used to be. It's a tough, tough time to get a mobile home. What if the economy hits into recession? Uh, is is the uh, disbalance in supply demand still still very substantial? That uh, all these new deliveries will still be uh, in high demand? And I th- I think so. In two thousand eight, I look. I if I could pull it up, I have a graph showing it's the one asset class. I mean, there may have been others I didn't know about, but the one asset class out of like seven that had no dip at all in two thousand eight. Um, it just kept going and even self storage, which was, you know, largely recession resistant, still had a dip in 2008. Um, but no, uh, mobile homes, they should continue to do really well. I, I have a friend who was the uh, head of HUD, uh, David Stevens under Obama. And, um, he, um, uh, he told me the other day that, uh, no matter what happens in the economy, and he said, there's going to be a deep recession and we can talk about that if you want. But anyway, he said uh, uh, affordable housing should keep chugging along incredibly well. Yeah, I happen to agree with you, even if there is a severe um, recession. Although this time around, it, 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 it's, a, it's a bizarre set of circumstances. And there are some predictions for pretty severe. <laughs> Jamie Diamond uh, of the JP Morgan Chase 
call it that the hurricane is coming and uh they, they can be a very substantial recession there's no question about it but, yeah uh, i believe so housing it. is one asset class that I don't know if it's isolated, but it's because of a substitution effect. People need to live yeah. somewhere, and if they can't afford more expensive stuff, they yeah. got to downsize. They they go into affordable range. Sure, right? Yep. Um, yeah, I let's, agree. Uh, just talk a little bit more about your new fund. Just give you a fun little little promotion uh, mm-hmm. in a nice manner. Just talk talk a little bit about the new fund you're launching, um, Wellings Real Estate Income yeah. Fund. Yeah, uh, yeah. When is it coming out? It's it's, it's lunching momentarily, just a little bit about it. Just, just give it a little bit of a, a promotion. Yeah. Hopefully. So, so we, Wellings Capital did not really feel like we wanted to be the general, a co-general partner with all the people we invest with. And we didn't, you know, think that would even be realistic. Um, and so we kind of stepped back about a year ago and scratched our head and tried to figure out how to solve this. Uh, because, uh, you know, without being a co-general partner, I don't want to get deeply in the weeds here, but it caused some issues. And so we visited with a, a high-level attorney who basically set us up as a public, public fund. And so we're a publicly registered company. We are now a registered investment advisor. The SEC has given us a blessing to, to do this, you know, so it's not a, it's not a, uh, it's not a private organization anymore. It will have to do annual audits, monthly valuations, uh, all kinds of compliance stuff. It's been a real headache, but it's going to give investors, you know, uh, a comfort, you know, of the fact that we're audited, the fact that we're, um, you know, that we're, we have the SEC oversight. Um, and we have, um, basically we have uh, a runway where we can raise, you know, hundreds of millions of dollars if we choose to, and we don't have to keep pushing restart, um, which was really hard for us because our last two funds, you might remember Mike were three C one funds, which is a technicality, but that they had a hundred investor limit. And that was just really hard for us to, to deal with, to, to have a diversification as wide as we wanted to be. So this fund is hopefully going to have projecting five to eight percent cash flow from uh, from operations, and then um, we're projecting a total annual return of twelve to fifteen percent. Hopefully, it'll go higher than that, but uh, that's what we're projecting. I got you. Most of the uh, appreciation will come in the form of these value investments that, like you mentioned, late industrial, mm-hmm. uh, some mobile. Home, I guess, parks, uh, storage. Uh, you, you, you're doing, I guess, broad range of these income-focused assets, right? That that's what you are mm-hmm. looking to. Uh, to yeah, invest. yeah, yeah. All the all those six we talked about earlier. Yeah, we're. Uh, did I not mention any? Yeah, we're doing some multifamily as well. So, very cool. Yeah, yeah uh, love these asset classes, and, and certainly um, uh, appreciate uh, uh, the value focused. Uh, investment philosophy and and I, I don't envy you uh, as far as the running a public or a public fund. Uh, <laughs> it, it's something that is uh, it's an it's a beast of its own. It's an undertaking. Right. It's um, it's an aggravation. Uh, we we have one of our funds uh, audited annually, and it's it's work. It's a lot of work, in fact. Mm-hmm. And uh, but it's it's a trade off. You're right. The uh, the beauty is that you you have a little bit more. Um, friendly investor friendly setup and not only investor friendly it's it's also like you said you have a limited number of investors and you can keep raising capital into the right. same vehicle for years instead of 
I just have one quick question. So you're going to do monthly mark-to-market evaluation? Is that what you're looking to do? Yeah, and, and you know, we we so we're going to have to get you know quarterly valuations of these assets. And I, I don't know that they have to get a full, they don't have to get a full appraisal or anything like that every quarter, but they have to have an estimate of value uh, from our operators and our, then our compliance and their, our valuation folks will, you know, basically publish that information. So, yeah, it's, I mean, so it's, it means that basically someone buys in day one, it'll be a set share price, but you know, if they buy in a year from now, it might be a higher per share price. Yeah, of course, I know the, the model. I mean, this is what we do in our Tempo Opportunity Fund. And I can tell you it's 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 difficult uh, yeah. doing quarterly valuations. Some people do annual valuations. Uh, some people do quarterly. I would not recommend monthly. I don't know what you're thinking. But uh, if it's quarterly, you can live with it. But the bigger the fund gets, the more work it is to go at a, look at every asset and try to adjust valuation every quarter. The biggest challenge becomes when you have value add projects. Yeah, um, right. it, it's really hard to value them in the middle in the middle of a life cycle. Right. Very hard. It's almost like you do the best you can, but you're trying to be both conservative for the uh, and, and at the same time fair to existing investors. So conservative right. to new investors and fair. Yeah, that's right. Uh, but hey, listen, you set it up. You're going with it. So I wish you best of success. Thank you. It's doable, uh, but it's a lot of work. And yeah. Yeah, I mean, that's kind of the the comment that I'll make on this is that it is uh, something that you're committing to do for many, many years, and it's going to be hard. It's got its uh, advantages, but it's got some substantial um, uh, drawbacks. And we've Mm -hmm. chosen, after our our Temple Opportunity Fund, we've chosen not to do it, rather run closed-ended funds, raise the capital for some amount of time, then close it and not have the same issue. Uh, But it's a different... It's a different approach and you've done both of them. So uh, enjoy the journey. It's a different journey. I don't know if you've run open-ended funds before, uh, but this this will be uh, uh, a fun, I guess, hopefully fun journey. I don't know how else to put it. So. I might be calling you or call, you know, getting hold of you on Vox or crying at midnight. You never know. Yeah, yeah. We'll, we'll share the experience. We're going through this every quarter. <laughs> so I can tell yeah. you, every quarter you start pulling your hair out because some projects is very hard to know exactly what they're worth. And what's right. really uh, challenging is that um, when you have volatile markets, the exercise gets even more difficult. Like mm-hmm. During the COVID, when things got really volatile, we had very difficult time to do it. To do it. But in the long run, in steady markets with a good predictive models, you could do this. So anyway, I know I'm getting off the tangent, but enjoy. It should be a fun um Fun journey and that very successful uh, enterprise. So, yeah, thank you. It. Yeah, we plan to go ten years, so we'll see what happens. Well, it's a it's a one step at a time, one quarter at a time. Leave for this. Yeah, one. right. Um, any other final thoughts? Uh, any anything to share? Any new great books recently? Any any anything you'd like to share with the audience? Yeah. Uh, do I have it here? Uh, no, the great book, uh, Richard. Um, excuse me, William Green wrote a book called Richer, Wiser, Happier. And uh, Charlie Munger was interviewed in the book and he said it's one of the greatest investment books of all time. Uh, and I have to agree, it is so good. And uh, it's, it'll, it's only been out about a year. And um, William Green is now one of the co-hosts of the, uh, the We Study Billionaires 
the investors podcast. And um, it is just a fabulous book dialing in on the emotions, the personal lives, the public lives, et cetera, of these great investment giants over the years, you know, people like Charlie Munger and then uh, Howard Marks and uh, Ray Dalio, all these great people. I mean, uh, you know, uh, Sir John Templeton uh, and, and every chapter focuses on one main person, but then has a lot of side stories about other similar people who learned these great lessons through failure and pain and loss and, you know, how they agonized about laying off employees and all this different things. Thank you for sharing. Richer, wiser, happier. That, that's yeah. a great title. <laughs> yeah. I, I guess most of us go through this uh, over years and the, the hope is we, we wind up happy because some people get richer and wiser, but not necessarily happier. So. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Did you know that if you, there's a study out there, I think we've talked about this before and I'm going to round the number off so it's easier, but if you make over about a hundred thousand a year, if you make anywhere up to a hundred thousand, you're happier as you go, because you know, you need a roof over your head and you don't want to struggle to pay your bills. But when you hit about a hundred thousand or more in the Western hemisphere, they say you're no happier after that. So in other words, if you're at 200,000, 2 million, 20 million, 2 billion, they say you're really not any happier and that's shocking, but that's freeing also because it means that I don't have to work all Friday evening to keep up with my emails this evening because I can enjoy time with my family. Um, and I know that sounds funny, but it really is true. And I know that's a big value to you, your family, Mike. And, and if we can keep that in mind that we're probably not going to be any happier than we are today, no matter how much more we make, it is kind of helpful. What's that wisdom? Money doesn't buy happiness. So yeah. you could be, like, you, like you said, you could be making a lot more money but not, not getting any happier. In fact, right. it would be <laughs> money can buy misery. Yeah, you can. You can. More money can buy misery. Well, reach your wiser happier. Thank you for sharing that. Absolutely. Well, uh, if folks wanted to reach out to you to uh, ask questions about your new fund, uh, what is the best way to get a hold of you? They can just come to uh, Wellings Capital, W-E-L-L-I-N-G-S, wellingscapital.com. And the best place to go there is just wellingscapital.com slash resources. And that has some special reports on self-storage, mobile home parks, and more. Thank you very much for sharing. Thank you for coming on the podcast. Appreciate you, you very much. And uh, have an awesome uh, weekend. You too, Mike. Thanks. Thank you for listening to the Big Mike Fund Podcast. To receive your copy of Mike's How to Choose a Smart Real Estate Fund book, head to BigMikeFund.com or visit Amazon and type Mike's slot name. Keep listening and keep investing Big Mike style. See you on the next episode.